Hello, Ma. We're in Wazoo. It's in Beecham County, Alabama, Ma. Not, not too good, Ma. We, uh, we've been arrested. Ma, Ma, please. Ma, please. First of all, we didn't do it, all right? Murder. Ma, Ma, please. Ma, Ma, it's a mistake, all right? We must look like the guys who did it. I don't know what it is. Tell them what we think is happening. We think it's happening. We think they're trying to set us up as patsies, Ma. You know how corrupt it is down here. They all know each other. It's like the clans here. They're in bed. They sleep with their sisters. Some of them do. All right, Ma, listen. We've got to get an attorney, and it's going to cost a lot of money. How much would an attorney cost? A decent one? Fifty, a hundred thousand dollars? Fifty, a hundred thousand. I know, Ma. I know. Don't use any attorney. I think so. He says he thinks so. Oh, he is? Well, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. You think he'll do it? Yeah. So we got an attorney in the family. Great. Who? My cousin Vinny. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. With me is my friend Mike Scott. Mike, how are you today? I'm well, thank you, Dana. For this episode, you in particular were who I thought of for this discussion. I want to look at 1992's My Cousin Vinny, and I want to sort of talk about this movie because it has been applauded through the years for being very legally accurate. And I'm wondering if you could just tell me sort of your initial thoughts on My Cousin Vinny. Sure. Above and beyond it being, a, you know, just a great comedy, it is one of the most legally accurate movies out there. The thing with legal movies is, as a general rule, I don't enjoy them very much. Um, not because they're all bad movies. A lot of them are very good movies. Uh, we talked about on the 20th Century Movie Club, A Few Good Men. I love that movie. If I put my lawyer hat on, there's a lot of things that aggravate me in that movie. And, and you know, I people will ask me what I don't like about movies like that. And the best way I can kind of explain it is you used to be a DJ, correct? That's correct. Yep. So let's say you're watching a movie about a DJ and they're in a club and the club looks accurate and the people are dancing and the dancing looks accurate. But every time they show the DJ's hands at the turntables, there is no way their hand movements could make the music that they're making. I it's see. a technical detail, but since you know it, it infuriates you and drives you nuts. See it all the time. All the time. Good point. I see it all the and, time. And what really aggravates me is so many of these things, with a little bit of research and a little bit of care, they could be fixed and they wouldn't narratively impact the movie in any way. So a lot of it is just research failure. It's just lazy research failure. Um, My Cousin Vinny is not a movie that has lazy research failure. Uh, most of the things that aren't accurate in this movie that we'll kind of talk about are there because they are kind of essential for the drama. They are kind of essential for the story to take place. And they're ones that they just don't bother me at all because the movie gets so much else correct. All right, well, we're going to examine the particular court case that is the through line for My Cousin Vinny. 
Now, for those, boy, I hope you've seen the movie. <laughs> That's what I'm just going to say for the listeners out there. If you haven't seen the movie, stop. Stop listening right now and watch the film because we're going to spoil the hell out of the movie. But for everyone else that has seen the movie, of course, the movie opens up with our uh, our two characters, Bill and Sam, traveling through Alabama on their way to California. They stop at a convenience store, buy some groceries, get back in the vehicle. Bill realizes that he didn't pay for a can of tuna. No sooner does he realize that he doesn't get that he that he didn't pay for a can of tuna than there's a police car behind him. They are arrested. They think they're being arrested for shoplifting. Turns out they're being arrested for robbery and murder. Let's talk just a, briefly if we could about the interview that Sheriff Farley has with Bill. I mean, at what point could that confusion really happen where they're sitting there, he's being interviewed, he thinks he's being arrested for shoplifting. The sheriff thinks he's interviewing him for a confession for murder. Hello, Bill. I'm Sheriff Farley. Hi. Do you know why you're here? Yeah, I do. I'm sorry. It was a stupid thing to do. Have you been made aware of your rights? Yes. You're willing to waive that right? Yes. I'm willing to cooperate fully. I'll sign a statement or whatever makes this whole thing easier. <laughs> good. Good. That's that's good. But I want you to know, Stan, he had nothing to do with it. Did he help you plan it? No. I mean, I mean, it wasn't planned out, you know, just like, you know, it just happened. Did Stan try to stop you at any time? No. I mean, he was... Why, is that a big deal? Aiding and abetting. Aiding and abetting? What is that, a major thing? Oh, yeah. Yeah. An accessory? Are you guys kidding? An accessory? I didn't help. I didn't plan it. You didn't try to stop it. I didn't know what was happening. I found out later in the car. Why didn't you get out? Call the police then. He's my friend. <laughs> well, your friend has put you in a lot of trouble. What's going to happen to Bill? Nothing. Unless he's convicted. Of course, if he is, we're going to run enough electricity through him to light up Birmingham. We were friends at NYU, and we both applied, and we got scholarships to UCLA. So we figured the weather and the scenery would be nicer going to the south. What about the tuna fish? Then I forgot about the can of tuna fish, and then we, we left. Did he catch you with tuna fish? Is that how it started? No, he didn't say anything. But he knew about it. <laughs> I don't know. Let's talk about that for a moment. You paid for the groceries. And then what? We went out to the car, and that's it. When did you shoot him? What? At what point did you shoot the clerk? I shot the clerk. Yes, when did you shoot him? I shot the clerk. Hey, Dean, we need you out here. I'm in the middle of a damn confession here. Whoa! Wait a minute! Is that realistic at all? 
It's it's heightened definitely for comedic effect, but the reality is, yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, one of the things that that is so interesting about how criminal justice works is we have the Fifth Amendment. We can refuse, especially if we think we're accused of committing a crime, we can refuse to talk to the police. We can refuse to talk to the police without an attorney, but we're conditioned as people to try and help. You know, it's it's Bill says I'm willing to cooperate in any way I can, and any defense attorney is just going to pull their hair out uh, at, at that scene, but they have – people do it all the time. And so a lot of times, yeah, this type of confusion can be can be commonplace. You know, usually you're aware at least the vagaries of what you may be accused of, but – not always. A lot of times police officers, when they're investigating you, they don't tell you all the details because they want to try and catch you off guard. They want to try and get some incriminating statement out of you. And the other thing I really like about this scene, well, I got to jump ahead just a little bit. But, you know, when they say you shot the clerk and Bill goes, I shot the clerk, I shot the clerk. And that comes up later in the trial when Sheriff Farley says he said, I shot the clerk. Um <laughs> When we are in a situation like that, a lot of times statements that we think are completely innocuous can actually end up being very, very damaging to us. Um, and so, you know, Bill and Stan got a, a grade A lesson in why you should never talk to police without an attorney present. If in a police interview and by the way, listeners, we cannot uh, let me just say, should we put a disclaimer that we can't this episode can't be used for as as actual legal advice. Should we put that, that is correct? That, okay, yeah, so, let's do that. Yeah, just yeah. just just want to make this disclaimer. This is not. Please do not use this episode as actual legal advice in a police interview. If the person being interviewed is adamant that they did not do this, they did they were not involved. Can the defense play that police interview? It depends. Typically, there are ways to get it in, um, and I don't want to get super bogged down. But there are there are sort of evidence rules like hearsay that can kind of prevent it depending. But a lot of times, yes, the defense is allowed to play that interview. Um, or at least if the state plays the interview, the defense is allowed to use it as rebuttal and, and things like that. So there are definitely ways those statements can come in. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Quickly after the interview, uh, where Stan is now being interviewed by Sheriff Farley, and he's finding out that he's an accessory. He's being charged with aiding and abetting. And it's Pretty much, and they pretty much realize right then and there that they're going to have to get a lawyer. Now, when uh, Bill calls his mom, which is another hilarious scene in the film, he starts talking. He's going to need a lawyer, and how much is a lawyer going to cost? And and Stan says, "Well, good one, fifty, a hundred grand. Is that pretty accurate for a for a legal defense for a for a murder charge? For a for a, especially for a murder charge that they're looking. You know, they mention repeatedly that they'll get the chair. Um, so a capital murder charge, yeah, fifty, hundred thousand dollars is is honestly, given how old this movie is, it's probably, you know, a little quaint as far as the dollar amount goes. You're, you're usually talking hundreds of thousands of dollars to defend against a charge like this. That's incredible. And I don't want to get into the breakdown of what that money would be spent on. But I mean, we've got to be assuming expert witnesses, things like that. Correct? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. So, uh, you know, obviously Bill's mother doesn't have the money for it. It's announced that there is a lure in the family. And this is when we get the introduction of Vincent Gambini. So I guess the first question I have regarding this is when they meet with Vinny for the first time, they start asking him about his experience as a lawyer. You know, they, they say, you've had murder cases. Nope. Well, I imagine you've had breaking and entering, grand theft. Nope, nope, nope. They ask him what kind of law he's been practicing. 
He says, uh, up until now, personal injury. And then, and then Bill asks him, says something to the effect of, but, you know, you graduated law school six years ago. You know, what have you been doing since then? And uh, he says, studying for the bar. Finney announces that it took him six times to pass the bar exam. I am clueless about what the bar exam is. So I'm curious if you could just sort of bring me and the listeners sort of up to speed on exactly what the bar exam is. And do people fail this quite often? You know, that type of thing. Absolutely. So unlike a lot of professions, when you go to law school and graduate, you're still not actually allowed to practice law. Um, it's it's more akin to, uh, you know, doctors and things like that. You have to take the bar exam. That's what gives you your actual certification to practice law. And it is a two to three day test, depending on what state you're in. The, the bar exam varies from state to state. It's a two to three day test that's basically you have two to three days to just dump every single thing you learned in the last three years of law school onto a page uh, and try and show that you have retained the necessary information to be a uh, successful or at least competent attorney. Uh, the bar exam is incredibly difficult. I think even people who who pass it with flying colors would say that it's one of the more difficult things they've ever done in their life. Um, I certainly know it was for me. Um, and depending on where you are, yes, a lot of people fail it. Uh, some states have a passage rate of around 50%, which means one out of every two people that takes it fails it. Now, it's not a one-time only thing. You can retake it as many times as you want to. Having to take it six times is probably a little, you know, again, heightened for comedic effect. But it's not unusual for people to have to take it once or, you know, have to take it more than once. Uh, that that happens relatively. Now, what about approving an out-of-state attorney? Is that just a simple procedure? Because uh, Fred Gwynn's character the judge says that it's a pretty informal matter. It's not uh, an informal matter. It's actually a very formal matter. So when you're licensed to be an attorney, you're licensed in the state that you live. And if you want to be licensed in another state, you have to take another bar exam or have practiced law long enough that something that we call reciprocity kicks in. Some states will say, you know, if you've been a lawyer in state A for eight years, you can come to this state and and file the paperwork and we can admit you. But you still have to go through a whole background check process. Uh, it's called character and fitness, basically, regardless of where you go. What's happening here is Vinny's really doing something different that's called uh, he's being admitted on motion. And what that basically means is you can, in certain circumstances, get admitted to handle one specific case uh, for whatever reason that may be. Maybe you have a particular area area of expertise that's needed for this case or something along those lines. But even that is an incredibly formal process, and it typically requires you're sponsored by an attorney who's licensed in that state. So if I had a friend in Florida that needed to come here and handle a case, I would have to sponsor him and essentially hitch my reputation to his to say, for this one case, he should be allowed to practice here. It's not just a, a meeting with the judge in chambers where the judge asks you a handful of questions about cases you've done. That being said, this is one of those inaccuracies that doesn't bother me at all because it's needed. We need to get Vinny in the courtroom quickly in this movie. And nobody wants to watch a bunch of motion hearings that are going to take 
you know, weeks or months uh, for Vinny to get admitted to handle this case. We need to get him into the courtroom as quickly as humanly possible. So even though it's it's not accurate, I think it works in the context of the movie. When when I was looking at this movie yesterday, when I was watching this movie yesterday, it struck me that both Bill and Stan were on trial together. Now, is that something that is typical or is that a case per case basis? It's a case per case basis, but it's not typical. Uh, you can choose to sever what we call severing the charges, severing the defendants so that each defendant has uh, their own trial. And in fact, typically that is the presumption. And in this case, you'd absolutely want to do that because Stan is charged with aiding and abetting. His defenses are going to be entirely different than what Bill's defenses would be uh, because there's different requirements. So we call them elements. Uh, those are the things that make up a law that you've been charged with breaking. There's different elements for aiding and abetting. You can, you know, Bill could have been convicted of the murder and Stan might still have a defense that, hey, I didn't know anything about this. I didn't help plan this. I had no part to play in this. And that's a very, very different defense than the, you know, we didn't do anything wrong at all. So in the real world, yeah, you would actually want to do separate trials for both of these guys and they would need to have two separate attorneys. Um, it, it's, it's a pretty significant conflict of interest for Vinny to represent both of them. Defendants can choose to waive those conflicts. They can say, hey, I really like this guy, which I think arguably Stan does when he stands up after his bad experience with the public defender and says, I want him. I want <laughs> Vinny. You know, I think you could argue that's a waiver, but it, it's generally a bad idea. Uh, every attorney's different and every attorney, you don't want an attorney that's got to kind of serve two different masters when they're trying to plan a case. We're going to get into the first courtroom appearance here. One of the things that struck me about this movie, again, watching it the other day is, you know, there's a comment when Vinny talks about, you know, they don't really teach courtroom procedure in law school. So he, he sort of fumbles the ball during first appearance. So I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what first appearance is. With when, when you're with your lawyer and then sort of the courtroom procedure, whether it's actually taught in law school or not. Sure. And before I kind of get into that, one thing I, I want to talk about a little bit, and I mentioned it a bit with Vinny getting admitted on motion, is the timetables. Timetables are something that every legal show, be it a movie, a TV show, whatever, timetables are something that is always inaccurate. And again, I understand why, because we want people in the courtroom. But as far as I can tell by my math, this entire movie takes place in less than a week. <laughs> yeah. And in the real world, a, a murder like this, uh, you are talking two to three years oh. for this case to oh. finally go all the way to trial. That first appearance that typically wouldn't happen. Uh, the the type of first appearance they did in the movie, I'll talk about some other types of initial appearances, but that type of initial appearance that they did in the movie wouldn't happen for months, very likely. So all the timetables are condensed. Um, the, the legal system moves very slowly. Uh, and there's just, again, it's one of those things you have to do it, right? Nobody wants to watch a movie that takes three years. And most of it is uh, people sending a bunch of emails back and forth trying to negotiate and get evidence and stuff like that. It's just not very interesting. So I get why they do it. But it is, depending on the movie, it's something that can sort of aggravate me. It doesn't bother me here because, again, what we really want is Vinny in that courtroom. So so I just wanted to bring that up first. Uh, so, yeah, the uh, initial appearance is basically 
when you're arrested, you're entitled to have a, a, an immediate hearing. And in that immediate hearing, um, the court will basically just do some very simple things. They'll determine whether you're eligible for bail or not, whether you can be released on your own recognizance, whether you should be held without bail, which is very rare, things along those lines. And they'll usually do a formal reading of the charges as they exist at that point. Um, just to let you know, this is actually what you're being charged with. What they did here and my cousin Vinny is actually went to a later hearing called a preliminary hearing. Uh, and they did that almost immediately again, because a lot of that other stuff is just rote procedure. Prelim is really the first hearing where there's actual legal work being done. And what a prelim is, it's something any defendant that's accused of a serious crime is entitled to. And essentially what the state has to do is they have to put on enough evidence to show that there is enough question or that they have a strong enough case that a jury could find the defendants guilty. Okay. If the state can't meet that basic burden, then the charges get dismissed uh, and, and the defendants are free to go. So it's sort of an initial, hey, let's see what you got. Do you even are you are you just making this crap up or do you actually have something that looks like a real case here? Interesting. Now, how is that different from a grand jury? So a grand jury is a much older uh, system. And it, it in most states, it's still on the books, but most states – and the thing that, that's important to remember is criminal law, by and large, is all done at the state level. There obviously are federal crimes and, and federal offenses, but 90% of criminal law is all done at the state level. So it's based on state laws, state statutes, things like that. And most states still have grand juries on the books, but they've done away with them because they're time consuming and they're costly. And a lot of people, it's just hard to find somebody that's willing to sit on a grand jury. So in the state system, what most charges are brought is through filing of what we call an information. It's basically just a document that outlines the charges and the basic facts that support those charges. And so then you can take that information and you go and have the prelim and the end result is to a certain extent the same as a grand jury. And I'll, I'll get into the details of how a grand jury works in just a second. But the procedure is different. The way a grand jury works is you don't actually independently as a prosecutor, as the state, you don't independently file the charges. You present a case to a group of people who are, are specifically selected to hear grand jury cases and you just present the evidence. And then the grand jury actually issues what's called an indictment. The grand jury is technically who files the charges in a, a situation where you have a grand jury. So it's sort of this. The grand jury, we do the prelim before we file charges. With a prelim information system, we do the prelim after we file the charges. Uh, the standards, sort of the burdens of proof and things like that are very similar. It's just a different order in which we do things. Very interesting. Now, during this preliminary hearing, does the defense have the opportunity to question, to ask questions? I mean, because, because there's that scene when Vinny – and we'll get to the contempt of court in just a moment. But there's a scene where – when when Bill says to Vinny, didn't you know you could ask questions? And I'm just curious about that. 
The defense in most states, you know, I, I can't speak for every state because every state is different. Every state has different rules. In my state, yes, the defense can ask questions. They're not obligated to. A defense is never obligated to ask questions all the way through trial. A defense can just sit there and be silent the entire process if they're so inclined. Uh, but they do have the opportunity to ask questions. A lot of times in a prelim, they won't because one of the biggest assets a defense attorney has is not showing their cards right away. Right. And so a lot of times if you start asking questions, that'll kind of reveal what your defense strategy is, stuff like that. What a lot of times a prelim is all about is just locking witnesses into testimony, locking them into prior statements so that when we get to trial, they can't get up and say something completely different because then you would have an inconsistent statement you could use against them. Uh, but technically, yes, a defense can ask questions. I actually think Vinny was relatively smart by not asking questions in this case. First of all, he had just gotten the case. He didn't know it very well. Uh, he could have ended up doing a lot more harm than good. Uh, you know, one of sort of the old adages in, in trial practice is never ask a question you don't know the answer to. Uh, whether you're a prosecutor or a defense attorney, you should never ask a question you don't know the answer to because that's when you get lit up. That is when something goes very wrong in your case. So I actually think given the position that Vinny was in, he was very smart to just let them get the evidence out see what they were all going to say. It gave him a game plan. Now he knew I got to go talk to this guy about his windows. I got to talk to this woman about her glasses, you know, stuff like that. It gave him a, a sort of game plan and he didn't have to reveal anything because if you reveal something, then that gives the other side a chance to correct that problem. Right. So I, I think it was very smart on his part uh, to not uh, do that. I'm going to backtrack just a little bit because there is the scene when uh, the judge is asking him, how do the defendants plead? And this is where, where Vinny's trying to it sort of all of a sudden explain what happened. And the judge – and by the way, Fred Gwynn, amazing performance in this movie. I think you and I will both agree on that. Oh, he, he's wonderful in this movie. And, and later on, I'll ask you if you've ever had any experiences with, with judges sort of that of that temperament. But, uh, you know, the judge – you know, finally has enough. And he says, the next words out of your mouth, it better be guilty or not guilty. If there anything else, I'm going to hold you in contempt of court. And he says, I think I get the point. <laughs> and, he's, and so then, of course, the, the judge holds Vinny in contempt of court. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about, you know, what contempt of court is. And, you know, is it more serious for a lawyer to be held in contempt of court versus, you know, somebody in the gallery or, or whatnot? How do your clients plead? Uh. My clients are caught completely by surprise. They thought they were getting arrested for uh, shoplifting a can of tuna. What are you telling me? That they plead not guilty? No, I I'm just trying to explain. I don't want to hear explanations. The state of Alabama has its procedure. And that procedure at this point in time is to have an arraignment. Are we clear on this? Uh, yes, but uh, there seems to be a great deal of confusion here. Mr. Gambini. Uh, see, my clients. Uh... Uh, Mr. Gambini. All I ask from you is a very simple answer to a very simple question. There are only two ways to answer it guilty or not guilty. Your Honor, my clients didn't do anything. Once again, the communication process is broken down. <clears throat> it appears to me that you want to skip the arraignment process, go directly to trial, skip that, and get a dismissal. <laughs> well, 
I'm not about to revamp the entire judicial process just because you find yourself in the unique position of defending clients who say they didn't do it. Now, next words out of your mouth are either going to be guilty or not guilty. I don't want to hear commentary, argument, or opinion. If I hear anything other than guilty or not guilty, you'll be in contempt. I don't even want to hear you clear your throat. I hope I've been clear. Now, how do your clients plead? I think I get the point. No, I don't think you do. You're now in contempt of court. Would you like to go for two counts of contempt? Not guilty. Thank you. Bail will be set at $200,000. Preliminary hearing will be set for 9.30 a.m. tomorrow morning. Bailiff, please take Mr. Gambini into custody. His bail will be set at $200. So contempt of court is basically just the judge has given you an order of some sort. It can be something as basic as, yeah, stop talking or you're dressed inappropriately, make sure when you come back you're wearing, or it can be more serious, you know, people uh, missing court dates or not responding to subpoenas, things along those lines. But what it basically says is the judge has given an order and you have flagrantly disregarded and violated that order. Um, It's not just enough to do it sort of unintentionally. There has to be sort of a willingness to violate it, which Vinny absolutely 100% does. And anybody can be held, anybody that's subject to the court's power. So anybody that has a case in front of the court is a witness, obviously the attorneys, anybody can be held in contempt of court. It is worse for an attorney to be held in contempt of court. We are expected to be officers, what we call officers of the court, which means our job, regardless of how much we're zealously advocating for our clients or the state, our job is to maintain the integrity of the justice system. I know a lot of people listening to this are going to roll their eyes and say integrity, what integrity? I get that. But that is what we are we are tasked with doing. So if an attorney gets held in contempt of court, and it does happen, but if an attorney gets held in contempt of court, it's usually considered fairly serious. Which is why most judges are really hesitant to pull that trigger. Uh, I, I mean, judges, by and large, will not hold an attorney in contempt. They will call them back into chambers. They will chew them a new asshole, but they won't actually hold them in contempt because it, it can be a very big deal. That can go to the bar. Your license can be threatened. You know, uh, obviously, you can end up, the judge can end up sending you to jail like he does Vinny. I think. Fred Gwynn, again, for comedic effect, was really too quick to pull the trigger, but it works because it's hilarious and it actually narratively gets Vinny into the mindset that he needs to be in to actually try and win this case. Excellent. I want to talk a little bit about discovery. And there's the scene where the prosecutor Trotter. First of all, let me just say Lane Smith, who played the, the let me let me backtrack even more than that. One of the things I really loved about this movie, and I sort of touched on uh, in the fifth anniversary episode, was that. The movie takes place in a fictional town called Wazoo in Beecham County, Alabama. But I don't think the movie seriously disrespects people from the South. 
And that's one of the things I really uh, like about the movies. I think that, you know, it could have been so cliche to sort of present, you know, people in the South as being a little bit dim-witted or things like that, you know, because you see that in other movies. But I, I think when from the sheriff to the judge to the prosecutor, I think they're all treated with a, with a, a lot of respect. And that's one thing, one of the things I really like about the movie. What do you think? Can I add something yes, to that? Yes, of course, please. So, yeah, one of the things I love about it, too, you're, you're right. I, I don't think, you know, there's some background characters that could arguably be a little cliched, but the, all the main characters are treated with respect. And one of the things I love about this movie, so many legal movies set up, you know, whether it's the prosecutor or the defense attorney, they're this antagonist and they're the villain of the piece. And the villain here is really just a mistaken circumstance. Uh, Trotter, the judge, Farley, they're not trying to be bad guys. They're not trying to convict an innocent person here. They think they've got a guilty person. Now, they could have done better investigation and stuff. I get that. But we could say that about all sorts of real cases. They're not bad guys. They're trying to do their jobs and they're trying to do them well. And the movie doesn't treat them as bad guys. And I, and I think that is a, a really smart move on the movie's part to to do that. When Vinny and Trotter meet for the first time in the office and Vinny says to, you know, Trotter, how do you feel about the case? And Trotter says, well, I'd like to have the murder weapon. What about that? Is that is that is that going to be a crucial piece of evidence that's missing from a case like this? Well, in a case like this, you'd always want to have it, but it, it's not necessarily, you know, one of the things you see a lot in movies and TV shows is, well, you don't have a good case. It's circumstantial. Man, all of our cases are circumstantial. Circumstantial evidence is most evidence. That's why we have trials. The idea is you take these disparate parts and try and tie them together. We have a murder weapon and gunshot residue on the suspect's hands. That case doesn't go to trial. There's nothing to fight. And so, of course, it's circumstantial. So in this case, you'd like to have the murder weapon, especially when they're doing a defense of we didn't do it. Um, you'd like to have the murder weapon to tie them to that. But it's not essential. It's it's a it, this is as it appears initially, at least this is a solid case and, and a strong enough case to go forward based on the evidence that they do have. OK, so they're meeting in the office and then Trotter invites him to go hunting. And this is where Vinny's going to attempt to really smooth talk Trotter to get a look at his files. He doesn't realize that by law, he has to be able to see what the prosecution has. So what, can you talk? And, and if, if I'm using the wrong term, please let me know. But is discovery, is that what I'm looking at? Yeah, they call it disclosure in the movie. And I think that's sort of a, a leftover term from some of the older states uh, will, I think, still use that term. And I think part of that might come from the fact that Jonathan Lynn, the writer and director, even though he's an attorney, he's from England. And I do believe that's the term they use in England. Most of us use a term called discovery, but it basically means the exact same thing. And yeah, that is discovery basically says that we are entitled to see one another's cases, essentially. The, this idea of things getting sprung on you at the last minute in court, that just doesn't actually happen uh, very often. Occasionally, 
things, there's circumstances. But for the most part, trials are very much everybody knows what everybody's going to do. We know the witnesses. We know what they're going to testify to. We know what the evidence is. About the only thing that we're not required to turn over to the other side is what we call case theory or case strategy. Um, you know, I, I work for the, the state. I'm a prosecutor. So I basically maintain what's called an open file policy. I will send almost every piece of evidence, well, basically every piece of evidence I have to the other side. I'm technically only required to turn over what's called exculpatory evidence, evidence that might tend to you know, prove a defendant's innocence. I send everything over. I don't want to mess around with what is and isn't exculpatory. I, I send everything over because I just think it's a better way of, of going about it. But I'm not required to tell the defense, hey, here's how I'm going to try the case. Here's the order I'm going to call these witnesses in. Here's the questions I'm going to ask them. I don't have to give any of that stuff up, but I do have to give up their witness statements, any pictures, anything along those lines. And I'm required by law to do it. If I don't do it, I can be in some pretty serious trouble. After that scene, you know, there's the scene where they're riding in, in Trotter's SUV and, and Vinny says, I'd like to get a look at your files. And he's, oh, yeah, you would. And he just makes a phone call. And the next thing you know, he's got boxes of files. So that was just a great way for us to see that, you know, the, the prosecution, like you just explained, has to turn everything over. When Vinny interviews the prosecution's witnesses, he's at their house. He's sitting outside on the porch. He's, he's just talking to them in just basically real world settings. In reality, would that be more done like through a deposition? Typically not in criminal law. We don't, we don't usually do depositions in criminal law. In criminal law, it's um, a, a lot of just feet on the ground. We're not entitled to depositions. Um, and, and honestly, there's usually not. Depositions are very expensive. So it's actually far more likely that a defense attorney would be out there at the houses or at least calling these people on the phone to try and talk to them. That was actually a very realistic uh, aspect of the movie was Vinny getting out there and talking to these witnesses and seeing what they were going to say. Uh, and, and he's 100 percent entitled to do that. Witnesses are not agents of the state. They're not protected by any type of attorney client privilege. Now, a witness isn't obligated to talk to a defense attorney. They can say, you know, go pound sand. I'm not talking to you. But a defense attorney has every right to talk to and question a, a witness outside of court. Let's talk about the opening statement because it, opening statements, I think, in reality, just based on, and again, I am no means an expert on this subject, but just based on you know watching actual court trials uh, on on you know on YouTube or back in the day with court TV, oh, I've seen opening statements that seem to go on for a very long period of time. Of course, in this movie, I think again. Like you said, because we want to get to the meat of the trial, you know, Trotter's statement is very quick. And then, of course, Vinny famously says, you know, everything that guy said is bullshit. Thank you. Uh, Your Honor, counsel, members of the jury, the evidence in this case is going to show that at 930 in the morning of January 4th, both defendants, Stanley Rothenstein and William Gambini, were seen getting out of there metallic green 1964 Buick Skylark convertible with a white top. The evidence is gonna show that they were seen entering the Sackersuds convenience store in Wazoo City. The evidence is gonna show that minutes after they entered the Sackersuds, a gunshot was heard by three eyewitnesses. You're gonna then hear the testimony of the three eyewitnesses who saw the defendants running out of the Sackersuds a moment after the shots were heard getting into their faded 
metallic green 1964 Buick Skylark and driving off in great haste. Finally, the state is going to prove that the defendants Gambini and Rothenstein admitted, then recanted their testimony to the sheriff of Beecham County. Now let's get down to the lick long. Your verdict is going to depend on what you think of the sworn testimony. Not what I think. What I think don't count. You're the jury. It's your job to decide who's telling the truth. Truth. That's what verdict means. So word comes down from old England and all our little old ancestors. Now, we're going to be asking you to return a verdict of murder in the first degree for William Gambini. And a verdict of accessory to murder in the first degree for Stanley Rothenstein for helping Gambini commit this hyenas crime. Counselor, you wish to make an open statement? Counselor? It's time to make your opening statement. Come on, Ben. Uh, everything that guy just says bullshit. Thank you. Objection, Your Honor. Counsel's entire opening statement is argument. Objection sustained. The entire opening statement, with the exception of thank you, will be stricken from the record. The uh, jury will please disregard counsel's entire open statement. And you, Mr. Gambini, you will not use that kind of language in my court. You understand me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk just a little bit about oh, the importance of opening statements. So one of the important things to remember, and this actually comes up in the movie, is that we call it an opening statement. It's an opening statement and a closing argument. We actually don't get a closing in this movie because Vinny does his job so well. But, you know, most legal movies, that's the big dramatic high point is the closing argument. The opening statement is there to just highlight and outline what's going to happen in this trial. The thing to remember about a jury trial, and, and I always, when I teach trial advocacy classes or criminal law classes, I always tell this to the students. The thing you have to remember about a jury is they fucking hate you. They hate you so much. They are getting dragged into this courtroom through no choice of their own. They're getting paid next to nothing to do it. So they are already coming in just pissed off. So where the opening statement is really important is that is your chance to ease the jury, get them on your side, let them know that they're not wasting, that you're not wasting their time by making them come into this courtroom. That this case is important. This case needs to be heard. And they are the ones who are going to decide what happens to somebody's life here. You're not allowed to engage in argument. You can't use hyperbole. You can't make inferences or persuasive statements. Think of it as an opening statement is a descriptive essay. A closing statement is a persuasive essay. Now, a lot of us will still try and persuade in openings through inflection or the way we talk about certain facts. But we have to draw the line at saying, for instance, the defendant did it or the defendant's a lying scumbag, you know, those types of statements. 
Trotter's opening statement, I actually think, is pretty close to perfect. It's short. It's to the point. He outlines all the facts that he thinks support his his theory of the case. He gives the jury a roadmap of what they're going to hear throughout the trial. Uh, and he sits down before he wears out his welcome. You mentioned a few minutes ago that, you know, you've seen on court TV and stuff how these opening statements can go on for a very long time. Well, there's a reason for that. You're seeing them on court TV. These are usually high profile cases with a lot of witnesses, you know, a, a big, big, big murder trial could have as many as 20 witnesses. And it takes a lot of time to to go through that. But most criminal trials, I, I typically sort of figure if I can't give my opening statement in five minutes or less, I'm probably droning on. Uh, I, I, I try and just get there, get to the point and sit down. There's probably other attorneys that will disagree with me. In fact, there's probably a lot of attorneys listening to this that are just going to disagree with a lot of what I say. But that's my experience. That's sort of how I do things. Vinny's statement is 100% a closing argument. It almost could work as a closing argument, but they are correct. It is argumentative through and through. Um, and it's honestly not that effective because he didn't do anything to get the jury on his side with that statement. He he probably, you know, we got small town Alabama here. He probably offended a good portion of them by by <laughs> giving that opening statement. Um, so that that's definitely a tactical error on his part. Funny, but not a great way to go. Yeah, that's incredibly fascinating. I, I, there was one thing that that sort of caught my eye about the film was the fact that Trotter and and and, and Vinny they seem to get along really well. And so I'm just kind of curious: is you know, forget what you see in the movies. In reality, I imagine you know you're going to see the same lawyers, defense lawyers, you know, day in and day out. And 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 you don't have to necessarily speak to yourself, but as a whole, do both sides tend to get along when they're not in the courtroom? That's always the goal, I think, at least. And I can actually speak to myself. I, I, I think I have a very, you know, one of my best friends is a, a defense attorney. Um, and we have a regular weekly bar visit that we do to unwind and decompress and talk about our respective cases and bounce ideas off one another. And we have gone town in trial before. I mean, we have just gotten downright nasty. But the thing is, so much about trial is show. It's it's pomp and circumstance. You, you're trying to create passion and empathy uh, in a jury that, that, you know, doesn't know much about this case. Very rarely does it ever need to get or should it ever get personal? I think it's a little bit different in the civil world. And, and if there's any civil attorneys out there, I'm sorry if I offend you with saying this. Civil law is such a different beast. Uh, and so much of it is about uh, a lot of different fighting and, and stuff like that. Uh, so I think it's a bit less cordial in the civil world. In the criminal world, it's so small. There's so few attorneys that do criminal law. We, you're, you're absolutely right. We see the same ones over and over again. And there's no point in just having bad relationships. And frankly, it's worse for everybody. If we get along, cases resolve faster, cases resolve better. I think better justice is done by two attorneys who have at least, if they maybe don't like each other, they at least have professional respect trying to negotiate a, a fair resolution than if every case went to trial. Uh, and so it really does help everybody if we get along. And, and that is one of the things that I really did like about this movie is you're right. Trotter, as much as he thinks, it's clear he thinks Vinny's a buffoon, he still treats him with professional respect and courtesy. And and Vinny doesn't treat Trotter any worse. You know, he he still treats him with uh, professional respect. And, and that is, I think, 
the norm more often than not. There was actually a, a third opening statement that was made, and that was, of course, Stan decided to go with the public defender. Now, of course, this is one of the, I think, funniest, you know, gut-wrenching moments in, in the entire movie. At least it was the first time I saw it when the uh, the poor public defender goes up there and he has a severe stuttering problem. Would that ever happen? Where there'd be two separate lawyers, each representing a set, separate defendant during the same trial. Given the timetable that we've got in this movie and given that they, it was just before the start of trial, it's very possible. It's very possible a court would have ruled that uh, a motion to, to sever the defendants was untimely and, and they were going forward. It's still unlikely. I mean, it still doesn't change much as far as what we said earlier, that you probably wouldn't want to be trying these two cases together. But you can't wait forever. The court, there's there's a, and I, I'm blanking on the name of the Supreme Court case, but it's, it's a well-known adage where the Supreme Court basically said, you cannot slumber on your rights. You have all these rights, but you have to exercise them. And if you fail to do so in a timely fashion, then you will have slumbered on them and and waived them. Um, and so something like having two separate trials, if you don't invoke a motion to sever before the trial starts, uh, the court's going to say you waived your right to do that. So it's a little less unrealistic that at this point they would be trying the cases together as we get into sort of the meat of the trial and Vinny is starting to chip away at the uh at some of the witnesses the public defender this goes back to what you said earlier in the episode of never you know ask a question you don't know the answer to and just there's a perfect example of when he's asking the guy you know oh, do you wear glasses you know and that that entire scene it just completely collapses. So I think that's a perfect example you cited of never ask a question you don't know the answer to. Well, would you care to show those eyeglasses to the jury, please? Thank you. Thank you. Now, Mr. Tipton, were you wearing them that day? No. Yes, you see. <laughs> you were 50 feet away. You made a positive eyewitness identification. And, 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 and yet. You were not wearing your necessary prescription eyeglasses. They're reading glasses. Uh, well, uh, uh, Mr. Uh, 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 could you tell the court what color eyes? The, the the defendant's hat. Brown. Mm. Hazel green. No more questions. I actually wrote that one down as an example of that because I can't even articulate a better example than that. I mean, that just, you gotta know what you're asking before you start asking questions. There, with that same witness, when Vinny's asking the questions, you know, that's the great scene, you know, magic grits, the whole nine. I'm going to play a little clip from it so people know exactly what we're talking about. There's a point where Vinny gets very hostile with him and says, you know, are you sure about that five minutes? Are you sure about that five minutes? And, and the judge is saying, you don't have to answer. You don't have to answer. How realistic is that? Because the judge is saying, you don't have to answer. And he's still yelling at him. And the witness eventually answers the question. I, I may have been mistaken. Talk about that particular moment. Is it possible the two defendants entered the store, picked 22 specific items off of the shelves, had the clerk take money, make change, then leave. Then 
two different men drive up in a similar... Don't shake your head. I'm not done yet. Wait till you hear the whole thing so you can understand this now. Two different men drive up in a similar-looking car, go in, shoot the clerk, rob him, and then leave? No. They didn't have enough time. Well, how much time was they in the store? Five minutes. Five minutes? Are you sure? Did you look at your watch? No. Oh, oh, oh I'm sorry. You testified earlier that the boys went into the store and you had just begun to make breakfast. You were just ready to eat and you heard a gunshot. That's, That's right, right, I'm sorry. So obviously it takes you five minutes to make breakfast. That's right. Right, so you knew that. Uh, Do you remember what you had? Eggs and grits. Eggs and grits. I like grits too. How do you cook your grits? You like them regular, creamy, or al dente? Just regular, I guess. Regular. Instant grits? No self-respecting Southerner uses instant grits. I take pride in my grits. So, Mr. Tipton, how could it take you five minutes to cook your grits when it takes the entire grit-eating world 20 minutes? I don't know. I'm a fast cook, I guess. I'm sorry. I was all the way over here. I couldn't hear you. Did you say you're a fast cook? That's it? Are we to believe that boiling water soaks into a grit faster in your kitchen than on any place on the face of the earth? I don't know. Well, perhaps the laws of physics cease to exist on your stove. Were these magic grits? I mean, did you buy them from the same guy who sold Jack his beanstalk beans? Oh, uh, your objection, Your Honor. Objection sustained. Are you Mr. sure about Tipton, that five you minutes? Can ignore the question. Are you sure about that five minutes? I don't know. I think you made your point. Are you sure about that five minutes? I may have been mistaken. I got no more use for this guy. It's both uh, very realistic and a bit unrealistic. And where it's unrealistic is something that you see in a lot of movies. The whole attorney kind of crosses the line and the judge is like, you don't have to answer. And the witness still answers. Well, in the real world, if a judge says don't answer that question, everything just kind of stops. Everybody stops. And if the witness continues to answer, the other side is actually allowed to have their statements stricken from the record. So the jury has to disregard them. So that part's not realistic. Vinny doing a very aggressive cross-examination, though, is very realistic. What, what I think where I think it's wrong is I don't think the judge should have stopped Vinny. Vinny wasn't doing anything uh, that was in violation of the rules. He was doing a very aggressive cross-examination on a witness who was being very squirrely and evasive about answering the questions. And we'll talk a little bit more about how Vinny changes his tone depending on the witness, which is hugely important. This is a, a witness that that wasn't willing to admit sort of that he uh, was incorrect in what he said on the stage sometime, or on the stand. Sometimes you have to be aggressive with witnesses like that. I don't like it. I, I think it's not the most effective way of doing things, but sometimes you have no choice. So I actually don't think Vinny did anything wrong here. Uh, I think the judge jumped the gun by telling the witness not to answer the question. We wouldn't like it if somebody said, do the laws of physics not work in your kitchen? <laughs> but on the flip side, in front of a jury, that is a beautiful statement and a beautiful question because it really drives home the whole point of that cross-examination. Okay. And then you, you, you were talking about, you know, how he, he changes tones when he's interviewing, when he's questioning the, the, the old lady with the different thicknesses of glasses. 
And uh, I mean, have you ever seen anything sort of that bombastic in the sense that he brings out the measuring tape and he just says, 50, you know, goes 50 feet away and how many fingers are you holding? It was a great, great scene where the judge, you know, let the record show he's holding up to. I mean, have you ever seen sort of something like that happen? Sure. Seen it. I've done stuff like that. Sometimes you have to use visual aids. So much of a trial is just statements back and forth, words that have no context, no, no thing for the jury to latch onto. So sometimes you have to use visual aids like that uh, to, to kind of drive home a point. Um, and so I think there was nothing wrong with what Vinny did. I think it was very effective. And what I really love in that scene is, is yeah, how he changes his demeanor. You will lose a jury in no time beating up on a nice old lady, right? Like you're just going to lose them and they're not going to care what you say. So the way he's very, you know, he doesn't accuse her of anything he doesn't he doesn't set her up for anything, really. He just says, you know, how good are your glasses? And well, let's check. And, and then, you know, he doesn't come in and be like, ha, you need glasses. He just says, well, what do you think now, dear? I mean, it's so well done how he approaches that witness uh, that it's, it's actually a model for how to do a cross examination on a sympathetic witness that's on the other side. Um, because he doesn't attack her personally. He doesn't attack anything about her. Just, eh, you might not have been able to see what you thought you saw. So by this point, Vinny has been successful. I mean, he also interviews the other guy who's, you know, he takes the picture. He's showing them pictures, you know, he's the window, the dirt, the trees, the bushes. It was just great how he sort of just takes them step by step. What are these? What are those? He's starting to break down the, would you say, the circumstantial evidence? Yes. Okay. So he's starting to break that down. So then Trotter, you know, makes that phone call and says, you know, you did really good, you know, but tomorrow I've got, you know, I've got, you're in for a real surprise. And this is when he brings in the FBI expert. Now, Vinny raises an objection. And I've always been kind of curious because we talk about discovery and we talk about witnesses and how realistic would it would have been for Trotter to just magically bring in an expert witness from the FBI? Not very. Uh, uh, not very at all. There are actually, in addition to discovery rules, which says you've got to reveal your witnesses and stuff like that, there are uh, specific rules governing the calling of an expert witness and, and, and different timetables. You have to give notice in a certain amount of time, just like Vinny says, so that you, the other side, can have it reviewed by their own expert, properly prepared, do their own investigations, things like that. So you don't get to just spring an expert on somebody uh, in the middle of a trial, especially where it's not. There are some circumstances where it could happen. I mean, things happen in trials, right? Trials are kind of crazy and unpredictable. And there are some exceptions that allow you to bring witnesses that you didn't initially reveal to the other side. Uh, but this isn't one of those. Uh, you know, this witness isn't directly rebutting any previous testimony. This witness isn't somebody who was unavailable prior to this date. Like Trotter should have known about this expert witness well in advance. Again, that's where you kind of get stuck with the timetables and really compressing the timetables in movies is you have to have stuff like this happen because in the real world, you know, you're not doing a murder trial in less than a week. And so you've got ample time to give notice and stuff like that. Uh, so this is is one of the, the parts that's not very accurate. What is really accurate is Vinny's objection. I mean, his objection is completely on point, And frankly, he should have won the objection. There's there's no doubt in my mind he should have won that objection. So the laugh sort of comes when 
the judge says, you know, applauds him for how articulate and precise his objection was. And then just the, the laugh comes when he says overruled. I mean, right. I, so it's designed to get a laugh throughout the movie. And, and we haven't talked about Marissa Tomei at all. But of course, she won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for her performance as uh, Mona Lisa Vito. And it's constantly alluded to that she's incredibly smart when it comes to automotive repair and general automotive knowledge. Vinny decides to call her as a rebuttal witness for the FBI witness. Again, I'll ask you, you know, how does one approve an expert witness? And I want you to talk a little bit about, and I'm going to pronounce this correct, Voidir, Voidir, how do we? Voidir. Voidir. Yes. And, and if you could talk a little about about sort of, again, I know everything is sort of compressed for time, but, you know, Vinny calls Mona Lisa up there to, to rebut the testimony of the FBI witness, and uh, Trotter wants to Voidir the witness. So if you could talk a little bit about that per- sure. procedure. Sure. Let's talk. I'll start with talking about Voidir or Vordire or any number. I It's pronounced a thousand different ways, sure. depending on where you are. I stick with Voidir, uh, but there is no I mean, I'm sure there is an accurate pronunciation. But I mean, I went to law school in the South and it was Vordire and here it's Voidir. But it's uh, what it basically is, is a if I'm not mistaken and, and Latin speakers out there, you can blast me on Twitter if I'm wrong. It means to speak the truth or let the truth stand, something along those lines. It's basically a procedure that allows uh, attorneys to ask a series of questions to ascertain basic facts. So the first time you voir dire somebody is in jury selection. Uh, when we bring in a jury pool and we have to pick the four, eight, or 12, however many juries our jury is going to have. We ask them all a series of questions to try and determine whether, you know, they have any pre-existing biases or they know anybody involved in the case, all of that stuff. So we're voir them. We're just asking them these questions to, to ascertain these basic facts. In a trial, it comes up a lot with expert witnesses, especially if an expert witness was brought in at the last minute like Lisa was. Uh, The other side has a right to establish whether this person has the expertise necessary to be qualified as an expert witness. And so what they can do is just ask a very basic series of questions about their expertise. Now, typically where the movie does kind of go wrong, and again, I don't want to speak for every court, typically that's actually done outside the presence of the jury uh, because you don't want to tarnish the jury if this person's expertise isn't up to snuff, right? So you'll typically excuse the jury, voir dire them, then bring the jury back in and, and go through the basic qualifying them as an expert witness. Hold up your right hand. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help you God? Yeah. Ms. Vito, uh, you're supposed to be some kind of expert in automobiles, is that correct? Is that correct? You please answer the counselor's question. No, I hate him. Your Honor, may I have permission to treat Ms. Vito as a hostile witness? You think I'm hostile? Now wait till you see me tonight. Do you two know each other? Yeah, she's my fiance. Well, that would certainly explain the hostility. Your Honor, I object to this witness. Improper foundation. I'm not aware of this person's qualifications. I'd like to, uh, voir dire this witness as to the extent of her expertise. Granted. 
Mr. Trotter, you may proceed. Mm-hmm. Oh. Miss Vito, what's your current profession? I'm an out-of-work hairdresser. Out-of-work hairdresser. Now, in what way does that qualify you as an expert in automobiles? It doesn't. Well, in what way are you qualified? Well, my father was a mechanic. His father was a mechanic. My mother's father was a mechanic. My three brothers are mechanics. Four uncles on my father's side are mechanics. Vito, your family's obviously qualified. But uh, have you ever worked as a mechanic? Yeah, in my father's garage, yeah. As a mechanic? What'd you do in your father's garage? Tune-ups, oil changes, brake relining, engine rebuilds, rebuilt some trannies, rear ends. Okay. Okay, but does being an ex-mechanic necessarily qualify you as being an expert on tire marks? No. Thank you. Goodbye. Sit down and stay there until you're told to leave. Your Honor, Ms. Vito's expertise is in general automotive knowledge. It is in this area that her testimony will be applicable. Now, if Mr. Trotter wishes to voir dire a witness as to the extent of her expertise in this area, I'm sure he's going to be more than satisfied. Okay. It's not a super common procedure, but it's not uncommon. I mean, it does it does happen quite a few times in, in a trial. Of course, uh, the movie is a comedy, so it, it's it's really played for laughs. The fact that at, by this point she has had enough of Vinny, you know, she has been yep. trying, she has been trying, des- she's been trying nonstop to help him throughout the course of this movie with this case in any any way she can, and he has just been dismissing her and dismissing her. So she has had enough. By this point, though, Vinny just looking through a series of photographs, he's he's figured it out. He he knows he knows exactly what she's going to say. Again, it goes right back to what you said about always knowing the answers to the questions that you're asking. So he's but he's got to get her on the stand and she is refusing. So the question now becomes, you know, clearly she wasn't subpoenaed because this is all happening rather quickly. But what happens if somebody if you know you've got someone who's going to be an expert witness and they're like, I don't want to participate in this trial. I don't want to be a witness. I don't want to be have any part of it. What happens during that? What happens with that? That actually comes up quite a bit. And it's a, it's a thing you have to do. You just have to weigh the importance of that witness to your case. Uh, you know, a lot of times you'll have victims of crimes who they don't want to go through a trial, whether it's re-victimization, whether they've forgiven the defendant, whatever it may be. And you kind of have to weigh, do I subpoena this? Because if you subpoena them, you can force them to testify. You can get what's called a material witness warrant, have the officers go and pick them up and bring them to court. A lot of times, I think a lot of prosecutors won't do that because one, We've got a lot of cases and there's always another case. But two, it's a tough it's a tough situation to be in. Um, I have, you know, forced people to testify before and you end up basically much like Vinny does having to ask the judge for permission to treat them as a hostile witness uh, because they're so mad at you for dragging them into court that it, it can kind of throw off your your ability to question the witness in this situation. Obviously, Vinny had no choice. You force her to testify. And that is one thing they get right when she tries to leave and, you know, the bailiff brings her back up and then she tries to stand up in the stand and the judge says, you know, you will sit down and not move until I tell you to. That's all 
relatively accurate. If a witness is there and they've been called to testify, they got to get on the stand. What does it mean to treat someone as a hostile witness? So a hostile witness is basically a witness. And I'm going to do a little bit of trial education here. So bear with me. Every side calls their own witnesses. And if the witness that you've called on your side, you're questioning them, you're doing what's called a direct examination. And the rules of evidence basically say that when you're doing a direct examination, you have to ask open-ended questions. You've seen it in movies, right? You ask what's called a leading question, objection, leading, right? When you're doing a direct examination, you have to ask open questions. So for instance, I, I could say, you know, what's your name or where do you work? Those types of things. Questions that allow the witness to do most of the talking. When you're questioning a witness from the other side, you're doing a cross-examination, what Vinny does. And, and with cross-examinations, you are actually allowed to lead. And so you can really pin that witness down. You don't say, what is your name? You say, your name is, and you work here, and you did this, and you saw that. When you have a witness that you are doing a direct examination on, and that witness for whatever reason, is hostile to you. It could be they're refusing to answer the questions. It could be that maybe uh, this doesn't happen in criminal law, but in civil law, you can actually call witnesses from the other side in your own case. And so by definition, they're hostile to you, right? Whatever it may be, you can ask the judge to allow you to treat that witness as hostile, in which case you then get to lead, just like you're doing a cross-examination. It basically converts a direct examination into a cross-examination. You have to get permission from the judge because you're not allowed to do it under normal circumstances. Certainly in Vinny's case, that's an appropriate use of treating a witness as a hostile witness. That's inc- okay. Very, very interesting. Excellent. So, of course... Mona Lisa does her thing, and it's just just a brilliant, brilliant scene. There is a scene where, again, before Lisa takes the stand, Vinny asks Sheriff Farley, you know, we don't know what he's doing, but he asks Sheriff Farley to check on something. Sheriff Farley says, just tell me why. And what would that have happened? Could that have happened in real time like it did? In real time, probably not, just because, again, the timetable is so compressed that you're going to figure that out probably long before you even get to trial. But in the confines of the movie, I think it it works fine. And again, this goes back to my point of, of, you know, Sheriff Farley not being a bad guy here. Like he does not want to convict. He's convinced they're guilty. But as soon as Vinny kind of convinces him otherwise, he's all all in on trying to make sure they get the right guys that that could happen. Um, You know, I think we would certainly like to hope it would happen. Uh, A a lot of our system is probably a bit more antagonistic. And I'm not going to go on a soapbox rant here, but it's probably a lot more antagonistic than it really needs to be. But I I think that that would be an an ideal goal of the justice system is to have a situation like that where you do have a sheriff who's like, okay, tell me why. And then actually follows through with it. Uh, and again, let's go back to, again, Lisa being an expert witness. We talked about the voir dire, but just, let's, let's just dive a little more deeper into that. So this movie is actually a little bit ahead of its time. The standards for qualifying an expert witness for years were under a, a Supreme Court case called the Fry Standard. And I won't get into all the details of it, but the reality is this, Lisa very likely would not have been able to be qualified as an expert witness. You You really had to have 
some pretty significant credentials uh, to be able to be qualified as an expert witness. Just shortly after this movie, I think maybe a year or two, the Supreme Court created a new standard for expert witnesses called the Daubert standard or Daubert. Um, And it relies heavily on reliability of methods. And, And it sort of envisions that a normal person could be an expert witness if they were in possession of some type of scientific, technical, or specialized knowledge that the average person uh, doesn't possess. And so under the Daubert standard, Lisa actually, I think, has a reasonable shot of getting qualified as an expert witness. Uh, She's clearly got the experience. Her methods, you know, in the real world, Vinny would have asked a lot more about the methods that she used to work on cars and were they reliable and accepted industry standards and stuff like that. Uh, But I actually think she has a a realistic shot of getting qualified as an expert witness. Not so much at the time the movie was made, but definitely now I, I think I think she does. And so it was kind of interesting to me that the movie was just maybe Jonathan Lynn saw the winds of change coming or something like that and, and kind of knew that the standard was going to change. And the voir dire process is uh, in this movie. It's a single question, and and can a single question qualify somebody? It it, it can it can to a certain extent if you can establish everything that you need. Because the other thing you've got to do after voir dire, when the witness is actually back testifying, you've got to establish what's called foundation, and so you've still got to establish that they know what they're doing. Typically, it's going to take more than just a single question and you want it to because you want the jury to hear every bit of this witness's qualifications, right? You want them to just luxuriate in how brilliant this person is so that they inherently trust them and have credibility with them. So it's a little unrealistic that it would be one question, but I guess it's, it is theoretically possible that it could you could just do it in one question. So after her testimony, we all know as viewers, I think everyone inside the courthouse, knows the truth, knows the reality. And Trotter just stands up and says, you know, in light of new evidence, you know, we, we the state the state wishes to dismiss all charges. Is it just like that? Like a snap of the fingers? Or, I mean, is there or is there a little bit more procedure that's involved with that? No, it is literally just like that. It is a snap of the fingers. As soon as the word dismissal, you know, the judge may have some questions if it's not this clear cut of a case. The judge may want to know why you're dismissing. But for the most part, as soon as you stand up and say State moves to dismiss all charges. That's the end of the show, man. That's it's it is that easy. And that's, again, one of the things I, I really enjoy is that Trotter makes the right call here. You know, a lesser movie, they would have still had to do this big, dramatic closing argument and all of these sorts of things and giving it up to the jury. And we'd have been sweating, waiting to see how the jury comes back. But the reality is this case was a loser for Trotter. He knew he had the wrong guys. He did the right thing. That should have been a dismissal, and that is something that you just don't see in very many legal movies. Is there something – Have I, I've seen it in movies. I don't know if it's reality. Is there something with dismissing with prejudice? Yeah. It, it, with prejudice basically means that charges can't be brought again. Um, without prejudice means that as long as every crime has a timetable that you can file charges, we call it a statute of limitations. If you dismiss a case without prejudice, it means that if that statute of limitations hasn't run, you can refile charges if say new evidence appears or something like that. With prejudice means essentially that double jeopardy in the criminal world, double jeopardy has attached. That case is dead. That case cannot be brought again. Um, in this particular situation, you wouldn't need to dismiss with prejudice because as soon as the trial started, 
jeopardy attached. So any dismissal in the middle of a trial, unless you actually get a mistrial declared, um, is going to be with prejudice. Oh, so it's, that's an automatic as soon as the trial starts. As soon as the jury is impaneled, as soon as the jury takes their oath to hear the case and the first attorney gets up and starts their opening statement, that's we're locked in at that point. That's very interesting. Okay. Well, Mike, listen, that was, I don't even know where to sound. I'm a little bit tongue tied. That was <laughs> that. Listen, that was absolutely brilliant. That well, was, I, I appreciate that. I was, I, and again, I, I, as, as I mentioned, I've been wanting to do this episode for a, a long time, but I, I wanted to bring somebody on who could really explain to me, you know, every, you know, facet that I, that I found interesting about this film. And you did that and, and, and much more. So, uh, you know, are there any closing thoughts on my cousin Vinny? I guess I should say first and foremost, uh, Lawyers don't always agree. So if I've said things that other lawyers that may be listening to the podcast disagree with, you can you can let me hear it on Twitter or better yet, don't. Um, <laughs> this is based on my experience and how I handle cases. Um, every state's different. Every lawyer's different. Um, so just take that with a grain of salt. And as we said earlier, this is not to be construed as legal advice. Other than that, this is, I think, just one of the absolute pinnacles of the courtroom drama or comedy. You know, it's taught in law schools. It's used as examples. It's one of the few that just doesn't send me into a blind rage when I try and watch it. Even if you don't care about the law, the characters, the dialogue is so great. I don't want to just, you know, gush over this movie, but this movie is fantastic. And if you haven't seen it, everybody needs to see it. Absolutely. Now, I, I earlier in the episode, I did say, you know, I, I was curious if you could ever cite any examples without naming names, of course, or any, you know, I don't want you to get yourself in trouble or anything, but you ever have any unique experiences with judges throughout the years, similar to what perhaps Vinny went, was dealing with, with the judge? Not to that extent. Um, I have had some friends that have had some, some difficult situations. Every judge, you know, judges are, are people and they have hard jobs and, and they get, they can get a little, just like attorneys can, they can get a little quirky. Uh, and so we've all had bad experiences with judges. We've all had good experiences with judges. What I do think this movie does nicely to a certain extent is Regardless of how bad any individual experience with a judge may be, there's always another case. There's always another thing in this case. You can't hold grudge. Everybody just has to roll and move forward. And that's kind of one of the things that I think is is kind of nice about the justice system is so many of us, regardless of how bad the experience is, we 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 are not interested in holding grudges. We just move forward. And that that happens a lot in this case. You know, Vinny's getting thrown and held in contempt, but then the judge starts letting him do his job and, and things like that, because that's that's what has to happen. We have to move forward. That's excellent. So if people want to follow you on, on Twitter, what's what's your handle? I am at Hibachi Justice. Excellent. Well, I can tell you that the I don't think we're done discussing courtroom films because as you and I have been talking, immediately I start thinking of some of the other great ones out there. And I can envision down the road us discussing a few more. I I, I just just off the top of my head, I can think of a few that I I really like to get your analysis on and i would love at some point down the road and i know it's a very you know it would be a long process to, to sit through the the mini series but i recently watched the night of are you familiar with that 
I have not seen it, but I am familiar with it. Okay. I would love to sit down sometime and chat with you about that one. Because, sure. Because happy to do it. That is a that is a that one I think is what's I think it's a five part miniseries that was on five or six. Five or six, yeah. Like but it it's it certainly shows you how slow the, the wheels of justice can turn in New York City. I found it just to be a fascinating courtroom drama, but now now there's the part of me wanting to know how accurate it is. So I'm sure down the road we'll we'll certainly discuss some more courtroom dramas if you're if you're happy to do that. I I I'm always happy to do it as long as as long as I, I got sort of a list of ones I never, ever want to see again. <laughs> as long as it's not one of those, I'm happy to. Uh, so as long as we're not talking about, you know, Ashley Judd's Double Jeopardy, I'm OK. <laughs> I'm always happy to talk about uh, a quarter of movies. So. Do you know, I'm sad to say that I actually saw that in the theater. Like, I did, too. <laughs> it, that was one of the ones where the, the trailer was so much better than the movie. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, you know, because you had Tommy Lee Jones, that famous line, the defense rests, you know, as you know, I'm just laughing out loud thinking about it. But I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go see Double Jeopardy. Of course, that was how I was actually introduced to the term Double Jeopardy. I think a lot of us were not 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 you, of course, but I think a lot of us, you know, civilians out there were like didn't even know what the term Double Jeopardy meant until that movie came out. Well, and that's what's so funny about that movie is that it's the entire linchpin of that movie. And they so manifestly misunderstand how double jeopardy works that the entire movie is based on a complete misunderstanding of double jeopardy so it just blows my mind it's one of those movies where you look and go hundreds of people made this thing not one person either they didn't care or for whatever reason not one person went um I, this isn't right guys can we uh, think about this um, yeah, it's it's something else. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Excellent. I think. All right, we'll close on that. So, so Mike, thanks again for being on the show, and I know we're going to talk soon. And my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.